Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm Paul Pepys. I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center, and I want to welcome you to this, the fourth of the OHC's Eugene Lectures on this year's theme of connection. As usual, I have a couple of announcements. Um, we have an information table, as you saw when you came in, that has our uh, email sign-up sheet, um, information about future OHC-sponsored events. Our speaker is going to do a book signing after the lecture, so for those of you who wish to stick around for that, please do. We're going to have Q&A at the end. We are um, running the audio and the, visu the visual upstairs above us, so if you want to ask a question at the end of the lecture, please come to the microphones in the aisles and make sure you speak into the mic so the people upstairs can hear your questions. Uh, next, I need to give some brief thanks, as I always do. First, I want to thank our collaborators in the EMU Event Services and at the, the Center for Media and Educational Technologies for their logistical and technical support. Thanks, too, and as always, to the OHC's incredible staff, Associate Director Julia Hayden, Program Coordinator Melissa Gustafson, Communications Coordinator Peg Gerhardt, Student Assistant Megan Connor, and our traffic controller, uh, Michael Bardosi. So, thank you all. Without the help of our staff and collaborators, the OHC would never be able to organize events like this and host world-class scholars and public intellectuals like our speaker tonight, the renowned biologist and primatologist, Franz DeWall. Professor DeWall will present this year's Robert D. Clark Lecture in the Humanities. The Clark Lecture was established in 1994 and has been sustained since then through the generosity of the Oregon Community Foundation. We're very grateful for the Foundation's steadfast support of the humanities and the OHC. The Clark Lecture aims to promote public discussion on the natural sciences, the history of Oregon, and the interface between science and social and cultural affairs, as exemplified by Thomas Condon, legendary frontier missionary, geologist, paleontologist, and founding member of the University of Oregon. The lectureship was named for UO's President Emeritus Robert D. Clark, author of the biography of Thomas Condon, The Odyssey of Thomas Condon. Given both the Clark Lectureship's emphasis on the public discussion of the natural sciences and the interface between science and the humanities, and our theme this year of connection, Franz de Waal was our immediate choice for the Clark Lecturer. The C.H. Chandler Professor of Psychology at Emory University and the Director of the Living Links Center at the Yerkes National Primate Center in Atlanta, Georgia, DeWall studies the behavior and social intelligence of primates. Professor DeWall has earned significant popular attention and public acclaim through books like The Age of Empathy and The Bonobo and the Atheist for his groundbreaking work on empathy, cooperation, and social cognition in chimpanzees, bonobos, and other species, and for the implications of that research for our understanding of the connections between humans and non-human animals and of the evolution of human social behavior, morality, and religion. A pioneering scientist who work, whose work cast for transformative new light on the development and importance of animal cognition, humanism in primates, and the humanities, 
Professor DeWall will speak to us tonight on the evolution of connectivity, empathy, altruism, and primate social skills. Please join me in welcoming Franz DeWall. Well, I'm very pleased to be here and to see such a big crowd. Even though the lectures in the humanities, you're coming for the animals, I know that. Um, animals, animals are very attractive. So the internet, the internet is now full. It's like we, we used to think, of course, that the internet was made for porn, but actually it's made for house cats and, and things like that. So, so yeah, it's very popular. But there is a connection with the humanities in the sense that um, I'm going to show you a lot of primate and animal behavior that I think relates to how we perceive humanity and how we look at human nature. The, the view of human nature is, is shifting, fortunately, and uh, I'm going to talk about um, pro-social tendencies in the primates and other animals, and, and we'll explain how that, how that works. And so these are the sort of topics I want to go over. Uh, reconciliation, empathy, self-awareness, pro-social behavior, and fairness. And, and you will see what I mean by how it connects to human behavior, because even though I will be talking exclusively about animals, you will be making the connections in your head, I'm sure. I'll say a few things about elephants also at the same time. So I started my work on conflict resolution. So initially, when I was a student, uh, all that people could talk about was aggression, aggression and violence. That was after World War II. It was after Lawrence had written, Conrad Lawrence had written a book on aggression. And, and every discussion about human evolution or human behavior, do I need to eat this up or? Is it working better? All right. <laughs> I just do what they tell me to do. Um, so in those days, every discussion about human behavior was about violence and aggression. And there was all that people could study, and all the books in the time, uh, both by Lawrence, by Robert Ardrey, by Ed Wilson, and so on, they were all about violence and aggression. And I was given the task to study aggression. And I noticed in my animals that they, they spent only 5% of their time on aggressive behavior, which was also interesting. But also, after fights, they would come together. And I got actually more interested in that phenomenon. It's sort of interesting aside. I'm from a family of six boys, and so I was very used to this process. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why I recognized it. So here you have um, two chimpanzees, uh, two male chimpanzees who have been in a fight, and the fight ended up in the trees, and one of them holds out his hand and begs the other for contact, and, and within a second after this picture, they came together, they kiss and embrace, and that's the reconciliation. And I got interested in that process as opposed to the aggression per se, which unfolds in a particular way and always in the same way. And so I defined reconciliation as a friendly reunion between former opponents. And once you have defined it and you start measuring it, it's something that happens all the time. It's really not something that is rare, and, and it becomes a recognizable pattern. Of course, at first I thought it's maybe only chimpanzees who do this, but now we know that's, that that's not the case. And so it's a very common pattern. Um, so this is how chimps do it. This is a male who attacks a female. Uh, the female comes back 10 minutes later. He offers a hand for a hand kiss to the male. That's where our hand kiss comes from. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think so. 
It's, it's probably an independent invention. We were so innovative. Um, and then you get the mouse-to-mouse kiss, which is the typical way chimpanzees reconcile. And the reason, actually, it's so recognizable is because chimpanzees behave at a speed that we recognize. We, we are slow primates, uh, as opposed to, let's say, monkeys who are much faster. So we, ha- we have the same slowness, and we have very, very much the same behavior patterns as the chimpanzee. But this is how stump-tail monkeys do it. Uh, monkeys, very different from apes. You all know that, I hope. Uh, the best way to insult someone who works on chimps is to say he works on monkeys. Uh, so uh, uh, monkeys have tails. You basically apes, at least I hope most of you don't have tails. Uh, and so um, this is a stumptail monkey. And the interesting thing with the stumptails is they, they have what we call a hold bottom ritual. One of them presents, the other one holds the hips. And, and they don't make eye contact. And that's the big difference with the apes and humans. I don't think humans can reconcile without eye contact. If you had a fight with your boss and you walk into his office and to apologize and to reconcile and your boss keeps staring in his coffee or staring at the ceiling and doesn't want to look you in the eyes, you don't feel reconciled, I assure you. So, so that's a big difference. Uh, but now we have evidence for all sorts of species uh, on reconciliation. The way we measure it in monkeys is what is called the PCMC method. And so, uh, sorry to get a little bit technical, sometimes I show you data. Um, the PC is the post-conflict observation, so for 10 minutes, or sometimes longer, you observe the two opponents and see if they get together in a friendly way. And then you do a control observation on a different day where they had no fights to see what normally would happen between the two. And that's the difference here. So in the post-conflict observation, uh, 60% of the pairs of opponents get together in a friendly fashion, and normally they would have done maybe 20 or 25%. Meaning that um, the monkeys do the opposite of what I learned in my textbooks at school. Um, The textbook said that uh, aggression is a dispersive mechanism. Aggression drives individuals apart. It creates space between individuals. And what we see actually in a monkey group is that aggression brings individuals together. There's post-conflict attraction between them. So, so that was a major finding, and, and uh, th- this has been found in the field and in captivity in many different species. Uh, and it has now been found also outside of the primates. So there are studies on elephants and dolphins and hyenas and goats and all sorts of animals. We have reached the point that if you have a social animal that doesn't reconcile, we are very surprised. And we, we wonder how they do it. How can they maintain a society? Because it's a repair mechanism. How can they maintain a society without doing that? And there's actually only one mammal that uh, doesn't reconcile, and, and that's the one that's so popular in Facebook and everything. That's the domestic cat. And, and I'm a big cat lover. I'm still waiting for the magical moment that they do something like that. But, you know, the, the cat is a solitary hunter. Why would you reconcile with others? You don't need others. And, and it is very much based on need, and all the theories we have about reconciliation in primates and in humans is based on the idea that you need others for cooperative relationships. So if you're a solitary hunter, maybe you don't need that. And now we have reached the point, so um, this is my original picture, uh, that Dawn of the Planet of the Apes has stolen my ID and uh, is, is having reconciliations. I always say if your IDs are accepted by Hollywood, they must be true. And so... Um, that's the point we've reached now, that everyone understands that this is a necessity for a society, uh, and, and that's what the primates do and many other animals do. Now, sometimes people think that 
when animals do something, it must be instinctive, and when we do something, it must be cultural or educated or whatever it is. Uh, that's, of course, a, a dichotomy that doesn't really exist. In, in humans, everything humans do has some sort of genetic component and is instinctual in some way, even though it's affected by the environment very clearly. And everything that other animals do or that primates do is, uh, to some degree, affected by the environment. So, for example, a chimpanzee is adult when they're 16, an elephant when they're 22. Uh, these monkeys are adult when they're five or six years old. So, obviously, there's a very long time of uh, learning going on. And so we did an experiment on that. And in the experiment, we took uh, rhesus monkeys and stumptail monkeys, juveniles of the two. Uh, rhesus monkeys are very, let's say, nasty primates. They're very aggressive and despotic, and they punish the subordinates very severely. They reconcile very little. And the stumptails are very easygoing and tolerant, and they reconcile very easily. They have a lot of squabbles, but little squabbles, and they reconcile. I usually call them the, the New Yorkers and the Californians of the, <laughs> the macaque world. I don't know how Oregon would fit in there. <laughs> Oregon would be on the stumptail side, I suppose. That's where you want, that's where you want to be, maybe. But uh, anyway. So what we did is we housed juveniles of the two together, and we keep them for five months together, which is a very long time if you're, if you're adult by four or five. And, and so this is what happens. This is the, the procedure. Uh, the, the white bars are the rhesus monkeys who had no exposure to stumptails and just lived with other rhesus monkeys, same age. And they reconcile. This is a reconciliation rate. They, throughout the experiment, they reconcile about 10% of the time. Then we have the stumptails. We don't have data here, but the stumptails, this is the co-housing phase. They reconcile a lot, and they reconcile always a lot, as we had expected. So what happened to the rhesus monkeys who were exposed to them? That's the green bars. They start out low. They start out at the same level uh, in the first co-housing phase also. Then they go up and up. And this is a phase, the post phase, where they're not housed with stumptails anymore. They're housed with other rhesus monkeys who had the same experience, but there's no stumptails present anymore. And we, so we have created this new and improved rhesus monkey who reconciles very easily. And, and it shows the flexibility of the behavior. And, and it illustrates this point that to talk about instinct, um, which, which is sort of gives the impression that things are unchangeable, uh, it's not really correct, not, not for primates. And I don't, don't think it's correct for humans. And so it gives this picture of uh, that actually conflict resolution is a learned social skill. Now, if you do the same experiments or the same observations on children as we did, so in children it's very easy. You go to a schoolyard and you wait till a fight occurs and you do an observation. You get the same sort of graphs between them. And if children are young, they have physical reconciliations. And if they're a bit older, they become verbal. And they say, you can play with my truck. And that's a reconciliation for the children. So we, we did that kind of thing. And, and we found actually in these studies that there's big cultural differences. So, for example, it has been done in Russia and in the U.S. and in Europe and in Japan. And, for example, Japanese children reconcile much more easily than American children. And why is that? Uh, the, the people who do these studies, they claim that the teachers are a very important factor, that American teachers, they interfere in fights. As soon as two kids have a fight, they step over there and they try to stop it and they tell them to reconcile, so, so they urge them to resolve their conflict. But in the, in the same time, they're interfering with the whole thing. Whereas Japanese teachers, they don't interfere. Maybe they don't let the kids kill each other. That's maybe possible. But they, they don't step in, and they let them handle the situation on their own. And that's maybe how they learn conflict resolution better than in American schools. 
Now, this is a human reconciliation. <laughs> this is, this is uh, Obama when he was still a senator. He got into a fight with McCain, and he lost the fight. He, he challenged the report that McCain had written, I believe, and he lost. And, and the photographer acted a little bit like a primatologist and took pictures of the actual reconciliation between the two. And what I like is the facial expression on Obama. He has put air under his lips, and we call that in chimps the bulging lips face. And in chimps, this happens when, let's say, one male puts up all his hair and tries to intimidate another male. He goes over to the other male. The other male, however, unfortunately, is not intimidated and doesn't step back for him. And so he has to retreat, and, and it's, um, it, it's usually an expression of regret or submission or fear uh, when you see this bulging lips face. And it's very common in human politicians. They show this all the time. <laughs> uh, so, I have, I have hundreds of these pictures because there's every week there is a scandal. Uh, and so this is uh, Armstrong regrets something. That Clinton, if you remember, had a lot to regret at this point. Um, we have the French version here. Um, and it's a male expression. It's, it, females don't show it. So it's either because females don't regret anything, which is possible, <laughs> or they just don't have it. I, I always ask, I ask my German audiences to, to give me pictures of their leader, uh, but their leader is apparently never embarrassed or anything. Uh, so um, it doesn't occur. Recently, there was a Japanese minister, a woman, who stepped down under a scandal, and still she didn't show this face. <laughs> um, so they just don't have it, I think. At the moment, I'm doing, I have an uh, infiltrator in the operating rooms in the hospital. So it's a, um, a postdoc of mine who's trained as a primatologist, who's taking data on what happens in the operating room. And the reason is that in operating rooms, in hospitals, not, not just here, all over the world, um, there is too much conflict going on. And so uh, we, we're taking data, because if you ask these people, the self-report, I know social scientists do a lot with self-report, but... I'm so happy I work with animals who cannot do self-report because <laughs> I think there's, there's a lot of nonsense going on in that. And if you ask these people, of course, afterwards, was there a problem? It was never their problem. It's somebody else's problem always. So, so we take data on what actually happens from minute to minute, the way we record data in the primates uh, to get a handle on what's going on in the operating rooms. So I'm do doing that at the moment, looking at conflict resolution and cooperation. All right, bonobos. Now, bonobos I've sometimes called the forgotten ape because we tend to forget that they exist. That's, that's changing a little bit. Many of you have probably heard of bonobos, uh, the primate hippies, so to speak. Um, but, but there was a time that very little was known and they were basically ignored. I'm going to show you a little video just to show how smart apes are. It's very different from most other animals that you know. It's, it's a sort of category different, really. And so this is a bonobo in Kinshasa, in a sanctuary where uh, they have many bonobos living in the forest. And this is a female named Lizala, who's going to walk with a rock for half a kilometer. So Lizala picks up a rock, which is heavy rock, puts it on her back. She also has a baby with her. And she's going to be walking with this. And what's interesting is that my postdoc, Sana Clay, who did this study, 
he knows something is up. You're not going to walk with a rock like that for no reason. That would be totally ridiculous. So she started filming to see what was going to happen. And, and what's going to happen is sort of a bit of a puzzle. So Lisala is going to walk a uh, half kilometer with that little rock. And, and you can try to guess what she's going to do. So there she goes. <laughs> Now, mm. now she comes at a point where she's going to pick up a few items. She drops her rock, and she's going to pick up a few things. And then she continues, puts the rock back on. And keeps walking. So this is an edited tape, it's not even the whole thing. Now she's going to arrive at the point where she wants to be. And the point is the only big slab of rock that's in that forest, that's here. And what she picked up in the meantime were a bunch of nuts. I think you're going to crack the nut. So now if you think about this, we are very interested in time travel at the moment, which is, can you, can you recall very specific events in the past? Can you predict events in the future? In order to do this, to pick up a rock so long in advance, even before you have the nuts in your hands, and certainly before you are at the place where you can use the rock to crack the nuts, requires planning. And so it requires that you think ahead. And there's an enormous amount of evidence now, not just for the, for the apes, but actually for the apes it's the strongest evidence for this kind of planning going on. And so bonobos are very smart. Bonobos are not particularly well known for tool use in the field, but they're very good at it actually, and we, we assume that in the field they probably don't have a lot of reasons to use it, not as many reasons as, let's say, chimpanzees. Now, when I was a student, this was the evolutionary tree. This was, Homo was completely separate, 25 million years or more was separate, and then we had the apes. And we were all very comfortable with this picture. It was produced by anthropologists based on skulls and bones and teeth. And uh, the anthropologists were very unhappy when DNA came along and we started to analyze DNA <laughs> because the DNA put us uh, completely in the middle of the ape tree. There's really not much of a separation. There's even now some people who argue that we should, with chimps and bonobos, we should be in the same genus so not even have the genus Homo anymore. Um, and uh, so we're quite right in the middle. And chimps and bonobos are equidistant to us. Uh, so genetically, a chimp and a bonobo are, are equally similar or equally different from us. Um, and so we're right in the middle. And if you think about this tree, what we do, we have a tendency, we humans, to feel that we are very special. And so what the anthropologists had been doing is projecting all that feeling about being special into their evolutionary tree. And so they would say such things. And they said these, literally. They would say, walking on two legs is really a big deal. 
But you know, chickens walk on two legs. <laughs> I'm unimpressed by it. Um, but they were. And so that's how they ended up with that tree. Uh, and now we have the, the DNA tree, which is actually much more accurate. And, and of course, everyone now believes the DNA tree. Uh, and in the DNA tree, Artipithecus, interesting character, uh, is, is a, um, an ancestor of us, meaning he walks on two legs. Because all our lineage walks on two legs. And so Artipithecus was discovered just a couple of years ago. And I'll show you a picture of Artipithecus. So here we have Artipithecus. Artipithecus was announced as a very peaceful hominoid. Uh, and so in that sense, very different from the apes. That's how the literature presented just two or three years ago. And they were completely ignoring the bonobo, who is very peaceful. Uh, the, the reason they called Artipithecus peaceful is based on the reduced canine teeth. So, so less weaponry, they assumed less violence. But you know, bonobos have reduced canine teeth. Bonobos have the same uh, cranial size, so the same brain size as uh, Artipithecus, the same feet, the same proportions of the body. Actually, Artipithecus is, is almost like a bonobo. But they were ignoring that at the time, and this has been a sort of pattern with the bonobo all the time, is that um, the bonobo is always sort of pushed to the sidelines. It's sort of irrelevant. Like, it's wonderful that they exist. We're all very happy that they're there, these hippies in the primate forest and so on. So we're very happy about them, but they're irrelevant, unfortunately, because we all want to look at the chimpanzee. Chimpanzees kill each other. So there's recently a report, actually, that came out that found in the wild 152 cases of chimpanzees killing each other over territory, usually. And only one suspected case in the bonobos. So that gives you a little bit of the difference. And the bonobos were not really welcome in the scenarios of the anthropologists, because the anthropologists, of course, believe that we humans got to the point where we are by wiping out everybody else. We are so successful as a species because we, we conquered the Neanderthals, we conquered everybody else, and that's how we ended up where we are. Even though now we know we must have been doing other things with those Neanderthals because we have 4% of their DNA in sitting in us. I don't know what we did, but um, it was not just killing them. Well, the bonobos reconcile with sex. They do everything with sex. This is, this is actually known as the missionary position. <laughs> and I have one time, one time I've tried to find out where that word came from. And I ended up in some German literature of the 50s where anthropologists had decided that frontal copulation was a Western innovation about which other people, unfortunately, did not know. And that's where the missionaries then came in. They could explain that to them. <laughs> so, and that's how other people started doing this too. And, and the bonobos, of course, they, they didn't meet the missionary. Um, you know what's interesting is that, about this whole theory is that it's so non-biological because our genitals are adapted for the frontal position. And the same is actually true for the bonobos. So, but that was totally ignored. So let me show you a little video clip from uh, Lola, the, the sanctuary where we do studies on the bonobos. The easiest way to get sex among bonobos is to introduce food. So food introduces competition, as it does in many animals, and bonobos resolve that right away with sex. So, so bonobos also, when they enter, when wild bonobos enter a, a fruit tree with a lot of fruit, 
there's also usually a lot of sex going on. So that's sort of an association for the bonobo. And what you will see here is, uh, is bonobos who are waiting for their food at the sanctuary. And at first, they're just uh, sitting around, like here, waiting. And now the food has arrived, and they're having sex at the same time. <laughs> so they're multitasking. Well, that's how you build a peaceful society. <laughs> uh, and we knew that in the 60s, we knew that. We've forgotten that afterwards. <laughs> I think what happened in the 60s was all very wonderful, but there was also a lot of jealousy and dominance behavior going on. And, and we humans are actually not so good at that as the bonobos. And so that's why it fell apart. So um, I'll show you a little reconciliation among bonobos. This is in a river at, at the same sanctuary you will see a little fight and a quick reconciliation. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. Because people, people think that bonobos have sex hours long the whole day uh, because we, we are very imaginative. Um, but, you know, 10 seconds is a long time for the bonobo. And uh, this is how it is. You, you have to look at it more like a handshake or tapping someone on the shoulder. That's basically how it's done. All right. Now the topic of empathy, which is an interesting topic to me. We do a lot of research on that. This is a dictionary definition of empathy. To understand uh, and share the feelings of another. So the understanding part is the cognitive part of empathy. The feeling part is the emotional part. I'm a biologist by training. I live in a psych department. I teach in a psych department. And psychologists now nowadays, they always go for the cognitive. So they always go, if you ask a psychologist what is empathy, it's always something to do with imagining the situation of somebody else, putting yourself in the shoes of somebody else. It's the cognitive part of empathy. But you know... Without the feelings or without the emotions, we wouldn't call it empathy. For example, a psychopath can be very empathic in the cognitive sense. They understand very well what you want and how to ex exploit you and take advantage of you. And so the cognitive part is not sufficient. And uh, the emotional part is really absolutely essential for empathy. And so I usually make this distinction between two channels of it. One is the body channel. You talk with someone who is sad and has a sad expression, very soon you have a sad expression, you have a sad body posture, you may even be crying if the other one is crying, that's all sort of body synchronization. Uh, you talk with a happy person who is laughing, you will be laughing, uh, and so that's the body channel of empathy, which is extremely important, that's how empathy starts. So for example, babies cry when they hear other babies cry. Sometimes in an airplane you have ten babies who cry. <laughs> and, and, and already on day one of life they do that, and Already girl babies do more of that than boy babies. And so the, the empathy difference between the genders is already present on the first day of life. So um, that's the body channel. And we're very interested in that. And that's the basis, basically, for empathy. And then you have the more cognitive side, the perspective taking, where you try to understand the situation of another. And that requires that you're also capable of drawing a line between yourself and the other. So, so in order to... Uh, the, the first one is... 
it's almost like you're fusing yourself with the other, and mirror neurons may be involved in that and all of that. The second one is you set yourself apart, and you understand that the situation of the other is not necessarily your situation, so it requires a stronger self-identity. And this level may not be present in a whole lot of animals. This level is probably present in a whole lot of animals. So we studied the body synchronization by looking at yarn contagion. Yarn contagion, very interesting phenomenon, has been known for humans for a long time, uh, but many animals yarn. Yarning by itself is a very interesting behavior. Lizards yawn, fish yawn, birds yawn, all the mammals, of course, yawn, your dog at home yawns, and so on. So we show chimpanzees a yawning, a video of yawning chimpanzees. So chimps are affected by the yawns of others, and, and recently this has been done on dogs. And in dogs you can just, if you play the sound from a little speaker, the sound of the owner yawning, the dog will yawn. It's something you can try at home. Um, but, but now the interesting thing is we showed two kinds of videos to them. One is in-group, so these are chimps that they know, they live with every day. And the other one is out-group, these are chimps that they've never seen before in their life. And what you see is the effect of yarn contagion is only present for the in-group. So, so they don't care about the out-group. They don't have a lot of empathy for them. And, and this is actually something that is universal for all the empathy studies. Empathy studies are now done on rodents. All sorts of animals are being tested on empathy. And uh, empathy is always biased. It's, empathy is generated more easily for individuals who are similar and familiar. And, and that has a flip side, meaning that we have a lot of trouble, trouble having empathy for strangers. Uh, and so in the chimpanzees, we have that same phenomenon. The yarn study was also done in Italy in an observational study in the field where people looked at yawning people in railway stations and waiting rooms and so on. And what they found is that if people stand next to a stranger who is yawning, they're unaffected. They stand next to their wife who is yawning, they're going to be yawning too. And so humans too, uh, you have that same effect, is that the in-group has a stronger effect uh, on that kind of empathy than the out-group. Now, to get closer to what you normally would call empathy uh, is consolation. So consolation is when you respond to the distress of somebody else by providing reassurance. And, uh, so this is a male chimp who has lost a fight, and uh, he's screaming, and a juvenile comes over and puts an arm around him. That's consolation. Human consolation looks very similar to that. So um, <laughs> the, the first studies... The first studies of human, uh, human empathy were done by child psychologists who would go into a family and they would ask a family member to cry. And then they would see how young children responded. And young children, already two years old, they will go over to them, stroke them, touch their faces. If they can talk, they would uh, ask how they're doing and so on. And so um, in children, this, this was studied for a long time, by the way, uh, girls doing more of this than boys, and so the sex difference in empathy that we have in adults also uh, was already present at a very young age. And the reason actually we think this sex difference exists, sort of interesting, is that in this field of empathy, the general impression is that empathy started with maternal care. 
so that maternal care for all the mammals, of course, it's essential. Uh, for a female needs to respond to the distress of her, of, her, of her offspring. When they're cold or in danger or hungry, uh, she needs to have responses. And so that's why maybe females are more empathic than males. That's also why oxytocin, which is very much a maternal hormone, if you spray oxytocin in the nostrils of men and women, you get more empathic reactions from them. And so um, we started studying this consolation behavior, uh, which in humans was taken as, as a benchmark of, of empathy. And we studied it recently in bonobos. This is a bonobo consolation, uh, and it's actually a very typical behavior in the species. We do this in a sanctuary that unfortunately exists because of the bushmeat hunting. I don't know if you know about bushmeat hunting, but a lot of animals are being killed in the forest in Africa, uh, which is also a conservation issue, of course. And what the hunters do, or the poachers, is they bring the meat of all these animals to the market. But bonobo babies are worth more alive than dead. And so they bring live babies to the market, and there they're confiscated, they're brought to the sanctuary, they're raised by people. But basically all of these bonobos that you see here are traumatized orphans. It's very unfortunate that that exists, but they live in a group, they live in a forest. And as you see, some of them have started reproducing, and so we also have some moderate bonobos. Pretty interesting comparison, because in humans, of course, we look at Romanian orphanages as an example of emotional deprivation, and that's exactly what we're studying, and we can maybe compare with the moderate ones. I'll show you a video of a consolation in bonobos. This is a baby bonobo, maybe three, four years old. They're very slow in their development. The baby gets bitten by this female, and you will see what happens after this, and screams and all of that. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Ben, didn't you just... Uh... Wait a second, I need to... Something happened. Abandoned, you just uh, attacked Malaya. Very empathic reaction, by the way. Uh, so you're all into bonobos now. Uh, so, so this is consolation. And so this is a behavior that you can study systematically because it happens very often. It's a very regular, typical behavior of the species. And so what we find here is that... Um, the juveniles do more of it than the adults. We think the adults become more selective. They, 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 there are certain individuals that they don't care about and they don't react to, whereas the juveniles react to a lot of them. But now the interesting part is the ones who are moderate, that's this one, they do far more than everybody else. And that's very similar to those orphanage studies, uh, human uh, Romanian orphanage studies, where we know that uh, children who are orphans, they have a disturbed uh, emotion regulation, and as a result, they are not capable of showing a lot of empathy for others. And so that's the sort of same situation that we're seeing, is that being raised by a mother is, is very beneficial for the development of empathy. Now, the cognitive side of empathy would ask, do they understand the needs of others? How do they react to the needs of others? And, and we do research on that. Uh, one of the best indicators for me is what I call targeted helping is where you provide help that is specifically geared to the situation of the other. So to give an example, this happened in a zoo in Sweden. In that zoo, uh, um, a young uh, chimpanzee was dying, 
because he was playing in ropes, and he got a rope twice around his neck, and he was hanging in the ropes. He was going to die. And, and humans cannot just walk in there, and, and you cannot walk into a chimpanzee group. Uh, and so, but fortunately, the alpha male um, went over to the juvenile and picked him up. So took the pressure off the rope and unwrapped the rope and then put him down. Very smart response, because if he had pulled at the rope or pulled at the juvenile, he would have killed it. And so he understood that what ropes do and, and where the neck is and how to, uh, to get it off. And, and, and so that's what I call targeted helping. And that requires that you understand the specific situation of the other. So that's perspective taking. And, and there's an enormous amount of this kind of anecdotes, but now fortunately we have some experiments as well. I want to start with a little video of bonobos. This is a bonobo female who's giving water from a bottle. She has found an empty plastic bottle. Giving water to others. So in order to do that, you need to understand something about the needs and desires of others. You need to know where water goes. It doesn't go into the ear, but in the mouth. She tips it back. When the mouth is full, she brings it back up. Uh, so you need to have that kind of understanding. She's also going to do the other one. She doesn't need to do this because there's a whole river running right next to them. But that's what she's doing. And so this requires some of this perspective taking that is uh, involved in targeted helping. This is a picture that was just sent to me by Ferrucci, who works in the field on bonobos. And um, what he has here is a female who has a metal snare about around her finger. It's very dangerous. She may lose her finger. She may also lose her whole hand. And you see how everybody else is very interested in this case. And this old female is trying to get the snare off. And she succeeds. She unwraps the snare, which requires, again, I call that targeted helping, requires that she understands the problem of a snare. She understands the technology of how to get it off. She's willing to provide help to the other and so on. And so that's um, a, a sign for me that there's perspective taking going on. And now we fortunately also have, a, have an experiment. This was conducted in... Japan by Yamamoto, and uh, he did an experiment with two chimpanzees, which he would bring in two rooms. One chimpanzee would have seven tools to choose from, could pick any of the seven tools. The other one would have one specific situation to get food for which he needed one specific tool. And so this chimp would need to look at the situation of the other, judge what kind of tool is needed here, be willing to pick out that tool and give it to the other. And that's what they did. And so that requires perspective taking, and that's targeted helping. And so we now have also some systematic evidence for that. Now, to move from emotional contagion, which I think is present in all the mammals, and there's also some evidence for birds now. So emotional contagion being very universal as, a, as an empathy mechanism. To move from there to targeted helping requires a, a better distinction between self and other. And that's also why in children it usually comes up only after the age of two. And it correlates with mere self-recognition. This has been speculated very long ago by Gordon Gallup. We know that it correlates with that in child development, but it has also been speculated that in, in evolution it may correlate in the sense that species who recognize themselves in the mirror, they have more complex forms of empathy. And that's how we got interested in elephant uh, mirror self-recognition. I first want to show you what a chimp does with the mirror. This is a chimp who is using an iPhone as a mirror. And the chimp has a little hole in her head uh, that comes from an injury. And, and you will see what she does. So she, she uses the iPhone to start looking at that hole. 
Now she's doing some grooming also. So this is very special. You, your average dog is not doing this. And, and if your dog does this, you're going to call me. <laughs> now this is what a monkey does. A Puchin monkey. So the monkey is very interested in the mirror, but it's not really using it. So for example, um, something that chimpanzees always do when they have a mirror is they look inside of their mouth. That's a very interesting part of the body that they never get to see. They know it very well, but they never get to see it. Or females look at their behind. The behind is a very important part of their body that attracts males. So they have to inspect that. The males don't look at their behind in the mirror. They, who cares about their behind? And so... Um, <laughs> That's how that works. Now, this is what elephants do. So for the elephant, we had done an experiment first at the Bronx Zoo. That, uh, so we were the first to demonstrate that elephants recognize themselves in the mirror. And so the idea here was that since we think complex empathy and mirror self-recognition go together, the species that have complex empathy, we know are dolphins, uh, elephants, uh, the great apes, and so on, they should recognize themselves. And so that's why we tested elephants. We did the mark test. This is uh, Josh Plotnik who did the mark test in Thailand. And this is Pepsi, an elephant. And Pepsi has a, a mark on its head. And on the other side, we put a sham mark. So from the manufacturer of the paint, we got the same paint without the color substance in it. And we put a big cross on the other side. But you cannot see it because it, it doesn't have the color substance in it. So this is Pepsi being marked on the left side. And the sham mark is on the other side which you cannot see. So now on a different day, he has been marked on the other side. Now he's tasting it. Now look what happens at the very end here. He also looks inside his mouth. So uh, he generalizes from the mark test. So it's not just some sort of sim simplistic performance in the sense that he can only do one trick, so to speak, because he generalizes from that test to thinking, well, now I can also look inside my mouth, and, and let's do that. You know? So we do a lot of studies on cooperation, which is related to that same topic of pro-social tendencies. And um, we, we have just recently completed a new study on chimpanzee cooperation. And the reason we started doing this with Malini Susak is we started looking at cooperation in a competitive world, as we call it, because... The claims in anthropology and economics were that, uh, that since the year 2000, all of a sudden humans became cooperative. Before 2000, we, we had selfish genes. We were very selfish and competitive and all of this. After 2000, uh, suddenly humans were declared the most cooperative species on Earth, which is sort of tricky for me. I was recently at a conference on cooperation in, from single-cell organisms to animals and robots, and... 
there's cooperation all over the animal kingdom. Look, look at ants and bees and uh, wolves and dolphins. Cooperation is rampant all over the place. But all of a sudden, humans were the most cooperative species on Earth. So uh, the claim in that literature became that uh, chimpanzees, unfortunately, they cannot overcome competition. They're too competitive. Yes, they cooperate on occasion when, when, when the circumstances are favorable, but they have trouble uh, dealing with competition and freeloading and all that kind of situation. And so we decided to set up an experiment in which we could test it. The only way to test that is to set up a, a cooperation in a competitive context. And so we, we gave the chimpanzees an apparatus that they can get food from if two or three of them pulled at the same time. Uh, but we did this in the complete group. So there's 15 or 20 chimpanzees present of all sorts of ranks. And so the high-ranking individuals can displace you. Uh, other individuals can steal your food. They can beat you up. All sorts of, all, and if, if it was true that chimps could not overcome competition, of course, this would be chaos. We would not have a lot of cooperation going on. So that's how we tested that. And it is true that some competition occurs. This is a female who tries to get rid of somebody else. He starts to drag at her, <laughs> and she starts to pull at her. <laughs> and so, yes, they, they do compete, but it's what we call low-level competition because chimpanzees have teeth, and they can bite, and they can make injuries. Um, and what she's doing is, is really not like that. And, and so we call that low-level competition. A lot of that was happening, but um, it, it almost never escalated to something worse. And, of course, you also had individuals who tried to groom themselves into it, uh, which is another strategy of doing that. And what we got is we got 3,000 cooperative pools in these experiments. So we have concluded that it's really no big deal for the chimpanzees. They keep going. They keep cooperating. They become more efficient over time. Freeloading doesn't pay because they either shun the freeloaders or they punish them. And so we felt that they were excellent at dealing with these issues. And so I want to give you a, um, a little video of this. And so this whole story that we humans are exceptionally cooperative, I, I'm not sure that I buy into that, but it has become a very popular story. So here you see uh, the experiment, the apparatus, two chimps. The chimps need to look at each other. They cannot do it without looking at each other. It requires that they pull at exactly the same time. And, and we also did it with trios, which makes it a bit more difficult. Now you get some of these competitive contexts. Here you have the alpha female walks away. A younger female moves in and starts to pull. As soon as she gets food, you will see, as soon as she gets that, the alpha female tries to steal that. doesn't happen. Uh, here you have a female who tries to get rid of a male. <laughs> the, the, the male is dominant, but... Um, Now, here, this is very interesting. We have these cases where, two, in this case, two females, they arrive from a long distance, and sometimes it's even three. They come out of the building, uh, a building that's far away, uh, and they walk in tandem to the apparatus, and they start working at the apparatus. It's almost as if they agree on starting to do this, and we don't know how they communicate this 
how they decide at a distance that they're going to be working at the, at the apparatus, but that's what they do. And so we found very high levels of cooperation uh, and, and, and very efficient mechanisms to deal with competition and freeloading. Now, in elephants, it's a bit difficult um, to set up these experiments. Elephants are very difficult animals and very dangerous animals. And so um, we do this in Thailand. Uh, and so th this is Josh Plotnik. We did this experiment co on cooperation. Uh, basically, it's an apparatus that has a rope running around it. And if you pull on this side of the rope, it disappears on the other side. So two elephants need to grasp the two ends of the rope at exactly the same time. And if they do that, they can pull in some food. And then we make it more difficult because the goal really here is to see how well they understand cooperation. And what we then do is we hold one of them back and see if the other one understands that the partner is needed for the cooperative task. So you will see how that goes. In Thailand, Dr. Sound. Josh Plotnik and his team have devised a unique challenge to find out. Using a sliding table, some rope, and an irresistible reward. So here's the problem. The elephants need to be able to pull the table closer to gain access to the sunflower seeds. And they need the rope to do that. But if only one of them pulls the rope, then they both go hungry. Can they work together to solve a novel problem? And more importantly, do they actually understand the concept behind it? The first time the elephants are shown this task, they fail. But this is a necessary part of the learning process. And something is definitely going on in there. A four kilogram brain is working it out. The first thing I think that they learn, and there has to be some learning involved in this, this is a task they've never experienced before. Um, the first thing is that they've learned that their partner needs to be there. And I think in some ways they've learned not only does their partner need to be there, but their partner needs to be doing something. It doesn't take them long to figure it out. But Josh needs to prove that their brain power allows them to understand what's going on. So he releases one elephant before the other in the hope it'll wait for its partner. This moment of waiting is key. Josh gets the answer he was looking for. What you're seeing is that the elephants are thinking about cooperation. Um, and that actually demonstrates how smart and how well adapted these animals are. It's all very well proving that animals understand cooperation. But how does it help them to survive in the wild? So this experiment has been done with many species. Uh, chimps can do it, uh, elephants can do it. Most other animals cannot do this. And, and the reason is that a, a response that has been rewarded many times, pulling at a rope gets you food, 
Now all of a sudden needs to be suppressed because you need to wait for your partner. So it requires that you understand that the partner is needed, but it also requires some emotional control, which not a whole lot of animals have. And elephants are very good at that. Uh, actually, uh, I rate elephants in terms of intelligence at the same scale as the, as the apes. So we did these studies on pro-social behavior together with Vicky Horner. This was also in response to uh, opinions that existed. At some point, uh, people started to express the opinion that, yes, altruism occurs in the animal kingdom, um, but uh, it's not because the animals really care about each other, it's because they're pre-programmed to do certain things or they, they respond to certain rewards that they get. Um, and so the, the, the mantra became that only humans care about the well-being of others. And um, th this has always struck me as a, as, um, a sort of questionable statement. Uh, and also, uh, it was based on experiments. The experiments were done with chimpanzees, and they failed these experiments. Uh, but uh, they were using an apparatus, so it's a very complex apparatus that where chimpanzees could produce food either for themselves or for somebody else. Um, and we looked at the photos of the apparatus, and we, we, we really couldn't figure it out. And we thought, well, if we cannot figure it out, then probably the chimps cannot figure it out either. And so we, we thought that maybe they didn't understand what was going on. And so that's why we started doing experiments without an apparatus. So a simple exchange task. Uh, together with Vicky Horner, I set up this experiment with chimps who, uh, one chimp chooses tokens from a bucket, and uh, you will see how this goes. I'll show a video. And has a partner. The partner's not doing anything. The partner's just sitting there. So, so this is the chimp group. I have two of these groups at the Yorkies Field Station in Georgia. This is my office, actually. I would say I prefer to look at chimps than over students, you know. So, <laughs> so this is my office, and I have these chimps here. And the chimps live in there. Many of them are born in there. And uh, we call them by name, and so we call them by name into the building. And, and so if they want to come, they want, it's on a volunteer basis. If they want to come or they don't want to come. Uh, and, and, of course, all the chimps know their names. They even know each other's names, so you can ask one chimp to get somebody else for you. And so uh, then they come in, and we keep them in there for a maximum an hour, I would say, probably half an hour for an experiment. And so they come into this little building behind glass, and that's where we do the experiment. So the chimps have learned to exchange tokens for food. So they know that tokens can get them food. That's all they know. They don't know what the two colors do. The two colors they learn during the experiment. So here we have green and red tokens. We have a partner sitting next to them, a little table. I'll explain how this goes. You get a selfish choice here. So the, the one who chooses picks a red token and gives it to us. We take the token. We put it on the table. We feed only the one who has given the token. The other one, the partner gets nothing. The partner is now going to express her opinion about the choice. The partner is fully aware of the choice. Now we get the pro-social choice. So now the chimp picks a green token and gives it to us. And again, we put it on the table. We remind them of their choices. The food is wrapped in paper. We give it to both chimps. It's wrapped in paper because we want them to know that the other one is eating so they can hear them unwrapping the paper. And so both chimps have food. 
and we put tokens back into the bucket because we want to keep the same numbers of tokens in there. So that's the whole experiment. We do this 30 times in a row. And the one who makes the choices, who looks exhausted here from the choices, the one who makes the choices, um, for that chimp, it doesn't make any difference. That chimp gets rewarded for everything she does. So for her, whether she picks a green token or a red token shouldn't really matter. Um, but of course, the difference is some tokens give food to your partner, some don't. And so this is what we get. 50% is the expectation. They prefer the pro-social token. If the partner draws attention to herself by climbing around and vocalizing, uh, uh, then the choices go up and they become more pro-social to that partner. If the partner puts pressure on them by yelling at them or banging at the window or spitting water, then the choices go down. Uh, they don't reward that kind of behavior. And, and this is what happens when there's no partner. And so we were the first ones to demonstrate that chimpanzees actually do care about the well-being of others. And now there are many other studies. I've already shown you Yamamoto's study with the tools. But there's also a very nice study on bonobos where a bonobo has a pile of fruit. The bonobo can eat the pile of fruit completely by himself, but has also learned how to open a door that is next to it. And if he opens the door, then another bonobo comes in. And what they usually do is before they start eating, they open the door, the other one comes in, and they share the food with the partner. And so there's now five or six of these studies, and so the whole story that only humans care about the well-being of others is sort of out of the window now. This, this is, by the way, a trend. If you look over the last 50 years on, on studies on animal cognition and animal behavior, this is the overall trend. Claim, the claim is humans, only humans do this. And then five years later, or 10 years later, the claim is debunked, and we move on to the next claim. Very happily, we make a new claim. It's always a theory of mine 10 years ago was the big claim. It's completely gone. Uh, now the claim is that we are the most cooperative species on Earth, which anyone who has seen orcas hunt, for example, would doubt, you know. So finally, let me say something about fairness. Since I am very interested in um, morality, and my, my new book, The Ape and the what is it, the bonobo and the atheist, is about the evolution of uh, morality. So I'm very interested in the evolution of morality, and uh, the sense of fairness is very much part of that. So empathy, compassion is part of it, reciprocity is part of it, uh, conflict resolution, uh, but fairness is, is a very big issue. And we got into this issue together with Sarah Brosnan because we discovered in the monkeys, capuchin monkeys, I had a whole lab of capuchin monkeys that I worked with, and we discovered that... Um, they pay attention to what others get. They shouldn't. It's a ridiculous thing. They, why sh if you read the animal learning literature, it's all about the rat pressing the lever and getting rewards, and, it, and it's the reward schedule that matters. How big is the reward? How much effort do you need to expend to get rewarded? That's that whole literature. There's never any talk about what is the rat seeing somebody else getting. But that's what the monkeys were doing. The monkeys were affected by what somebody else would get. Now, so we started testing this out. And so we set up experiments in which two monkeys could get cucumber, or two monkeys could get grapes, or one got grape and the other one cucumber. Now, the, the, the food preferences of capuchin monkeys, they correspond perfectly with the prices in the supermarket. <laughs> and so grapes are much pricier and much preferred. And, and you know, since we are 
all primates, we go for sugar content, and that's what the monkeys do. Too. And so uh, that's how we set up the experiment. The task is very simple. We give them a rock. They need to give it back in our open hand. That's the whole task. And if you give both monkeys cucumber, side by side, and you alternate between the two, they perform 95% of the time. So there's 5% of the time rejections. 5% of the time they don't want to do the task. So basically they do it all the time. So cucumber is a perfectly fine reward. You give a cucumber to a capuchin monkey anytime it goes into the mouth. Except if the partner gets a grape. Now, if the, if the partner gets a grape, we start to reject 50% of the time. All, all of a sudden, the cucumber is not so good anymore. And um, it's not only not good anymore, you don't eat it anymore. And then if you give the grape to the partner, so now the partner doesn't even need to work for the grape, uh, then they reject 80% of the time. So that means that effort is part of the picture. If you think about human sense of fairness, um, if I have a salary that is twice as high as your salary, and we do the same job, and we have the same experience, and let's say we have the same gender also, um, you, you may think that's unfair. I may think it's okay, but you may think it's unfair. Um, but now, if I work day and night, and I don't take vacations, and you take long vacations, and you don't work all the time, uh, actually, it's, it's fair that I get a better salary than you. And so we, we take effort very much into account. I'm going to show you our video that has been seen by, I think, 20 million people now on the Internet. People use it to, to send to the chair of their department to make the point that they need a higher salary or something <laughs> like that. So, so I'm going to show you this video. And, and what I like about this video also is that it has taken a lot, it has taken a care of a lot of the counter-arguments. Because not everyone was happy that we said monkeys had a sense of fairness. And I'll explain that. I'll first show you the video, and then I'll explain that situation. So here we have a monkey on the left who gets cucumber. One on the right gets grape. Um, and you will see how that goes. The one on the left gives us a rock, gets a piece of cucumber, eats it right away. So the per first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. Uh, the one on the right needs to give us a rock, gives a rock, gets a grape. The one on the left looks at that, gives us a rock, gets cucumber, Gives a rock again, gets cucumber again. All right. Now, when we first published the study, this, this was a nature paper. It was an important paper, and with all the statistics, a lot of tests, a lot of subjects, an enormous amount of conditions. Uh, despite all that, people were critical of it. So, for example, one philosopher wrote us that it's impossible that monkeys have a sense of fairness because the sense of fairness was discovered during the French Revolution. <laughs> so, so, So the idea is that a bunch of old guys get together in Paris and they decide the sense of fairness would be a good thing. Oh, sense of fairness. And that's, that's how it got installed in human society. That's, of course, not how it happened. 
uh, what, what these old guys usually do, philosophers and so on, is, that is, is formulate something that's already there and maybe turn it into a principle, but still, it was already there before that time. So, so we got this kind of objections from people who were unhappy about it. And uh, what, what amuses me a little bit is that we had produced all this data in the Nature paper, uh, and actually, this little video clip has taken care of all the issues, because now, all of a sudden, no one everyone can see what's happening. And so it's the emotional part of it. It's not the data part, like do they refuse, do they not refuse. It's the emotional intensity of the whole thing that sort of has settled the issue. And now we know that dogs do it, crows do it, uh, chimpanzees do it, uh, children, of course, do it. Uh, and so we now know that this response is, is pretty widespread, and, and we are speculating about where it comes from. Uh, I'm going to show you children, because mothers send me all these home experiments that they do with their children. Uh, <laughs> for which they don't need IRB approval. Uh, and so here, here's a mother who uh, gives a whole cookie to her son and a half cookie to her daughter. Cookies! Cookies! You want cookies? Daniel, here's one cookie. Anna, this one's for you. So, now, th this is what economists call an irrational response, <laughs> and, and my monkeys show the same irrational response. F for the monkeys, of course, cucumber is better than no cucumber. For the, for the girl, half a cookie is better than no cookie, but they reject it anyway. And so these are irrational responses that don't fit with the idea of... Uh, of, uh, what is it, um, resource maximization or whatever the, the principles are in e economics. And um, the primates show the same responses. We actually don't think it's irrational. We think it relates to cooperation. If you have cooperative relationships, and, and monkeys do and humans do, you need to pay attention to what you get out of the cooperation. And so that's why, why you're sensitive to what others get versus what you get. And that's also why in the more cooperative species we find the strongest responses to this. But now another thing. When we did this, I, I usually tried to console these philosophers who had written big books about the sense of fairness and the sense, sense of uh, justice, and, and because I'm a very empathic person, so I tried to console them, and I, I would tell them, well, you know, what the monkeys do is really very simple, because the monkeys have an egocentric sense of fairness. They only worry about getting less than somebody else. The ones who get grapes, they're really not worried about the whole situation. Uh, and that sort of calmed them down. But then... Now, uh, Sarah has been doing studies on chimpanzees. And in chimpanzees, we first of all, we saw that sometimes it happens that the one who gets the grape refuses the grape till the other one also gets the grape. That gets us much closer. And so we, we played the ultimatum game with chimpanzees. The ultimatum game is sort of the gold standard of the human sense of fairness. has been played all over the world. And all over the world, you find that people are sensitive to fairness. Even people have never heard of the French Revolution, they will have that <laughs> sense of fairness. And so um, the, the ultimatum game we played with chimpanzees and with children between three and five years old. And we found a, basically exactly the same result. And the result is that they e try to equalize the outcome. Uh, so the chimpanzees do it in the same way as the children. And uh, we, we are now at the point 
that if you ask me what is the difference between a human sense of fairness or a chimpanzee sense of fairness, I don't know exactly uh, anymore if that difference really exists. So that's where we are. I want to thank all the people who do these experiments with me, and I want to thank you for your attention. Any, any evidence of shame, embarrassment, guilt? So maybe a little guilt in what you saw there. Well, guilt. Uh, there's actually a recent rat study on regret. I don't know if people seen that, but um, was the title of the paper was Rats Regret Their Decisions or something like that. But uh, guilt is always difficult for me because guilt... We need to distinguish it from anticipation of punishment. So if you come home and your dog looks guilty because he has done something wrong, um, the question is, how did the dog feel before you walked through the door? Um, <laughs> or, or did he all of a sudden feel guilty when you walked through the door? <laughs> Which means that he's just uh, uh, fear, fearful of the punishment. And so we, we don't have a whole lot of evidence that, that it's as internalized a process as, as it is in human adults. I would say human children are maybe very much like the dog. Uh, young children, they, they also don't internalize it very deeply, uh, the process. Thank you, for, thank you for being here. I mean, you're like a hero of mine, but <laughs> more like a flashlight. When my eyes were opening to some of this stuff, you sort of shone a light on it with your ch chimpan. I'm nervous. Chimpanzees, sex, and politics, okay. which was amazing. Anyway, there was a long time ago in 1970, there was a report uh, in Scientific American about called The Origin of Personality. And in that report, they looked at how babies differ immediately from birth in terms of their own personality. Have you guys done any of this looking at individual chimpanzees in how they react to the world? Yeah, there's a whole field of animal personality. Um, initially, there was resistance to it. Uh, people said, no, animals don't have personality. Although I feel uh, anyone who has two cats at home or two dogs at home knows that animals have personalities. But, but there was resistance to it. Um, but now we have studies on even on guppies. Uh, the, the bold guppies and shy guppies. And, and so... Uh, but certainly in, the, in the, the higher primates, like let's say in chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, they have the same sort of personality profiles, I would say, as humans. You have individuals who are highly empathic, highly tolerant, some highly aggressive, some extremely selfish, and so that whole variability of characteristics that we see in humans, you can see in them. Uh, yeah, when you were discussing the result where rhesus macaques increased their reconciliation when... Uh, reared around Stumptown, or... Stumptail. Stumptail. Uh, Stumptail. <laughs> Stumptown's a local brewery. Uh, the Stumptail uh, macaques, if, if, um, if the increase in reconciliation was due to the Stumptail initiating those reconciliation moments, and to what extent you guys have evidence on 
how um, macaque, the rhesus macaques might uh, perpetuate that reconciliation without the yeah. tails present. So, so the rhesus monkeys kept doing it even though when they were separated from the stump tails. And so they don't need the presence of the stump tails to keep doing a high rate of reconciliation. So that was part of the experiment. But the experiment was broken off at the end. Uh, it's nowadays, it's very hard to get funding for anything longer than a couple of years. And, and I would have loved to do a study where we would keep them all together and see if they build a different society. My guess is they would have to especially if you would mix them, mix them in with other rhesus, they would have to revert back to regular rhesus behavior. It's a bit like if you go to New York, you need to act like the New Yorkers. Uh, so they probably would revert back to uh, their regular patterns. But I would have loved to, uh, to keep them together and see what would happen, but we never did that. Yeah. Hi. Um, there's a book by Matthew Lieberman called Social. He's a social neuroscientist. He distinguishes between like mirror self-reflection, which activates lateral areas of the brain, and uh, self-reflection, where if I ask you, are you a good dancer, are you an introvert or an extrovert, um, and that inv that's a very different type of self-awareness that involves medial prefrontal cortex. Uh, and I'm wondering if that type of self-awareness has been studied in any primates, or how would we do that? I don't know. I haven't thought of it. Yeah. So it's possible that there's a reflection on the self and a reflection on your past and a reflection on your future. All of that's possibly going on in, in the primates. Uh, some of which we, we can test out. So, for example, I, I showed how we can look at planning behavior maybe in primates. Uh, but a lot of it is, is inaccessible to us. And, and the same question, there's a lot of research now on consciousness and consciousness becoming a big topic. Uh, and, and we humans, we have consciousness, and, and so does an elephant have consciousness. And, and since I don't know what consciousness is, and no one else <laughs> seems to know, um, I, I have really no idea. I, 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 and even for humans, I know that I am conscious. I don't even know if you are conscious. <laughs> it's, it's very well possible, and you can tell me that you are, and, and I'm willing to believe it, but what is my evidence that you're conscious? And so consciousness is one of those topics, uh, and self-reflection is one of those topics that for the moment we cannot get a handle on. But there are neuroscientists who are claiming that one day we will, and, and that's a possibility, uh, and, and we're still waiting for that. Yeah. Well, I know Stanislas Dehaene in his book, Consciousness in the Brain, uh -huh. he makes a case that he has different tests of consciousness and suggests that mice pass those tests just fine. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know the details of those tests and genetic development that way. Yeah, since we don't know what consciousness is, yeah. I'm also not ready to say that a frog has no consciousness. So, so uh, I'm still waiting for the definition. As soon, as soon as someone says, are elephants conscious, I say, give me the definition and I'll tell you. But Thank you very I'm much. I'm still waiting for that, yeah. Hi, I'm so honored to hear you speak tonight. I'm a big fan. Um, read most of your books. I am curious uh, about the connecting to the conversation about personality. How do you factor into your research, behavioral research especially, especially with intelligent animals, the variation among individuals? Um, how do you select individuals so that you are not maybe unconsciously selecting, you know, very cooperative individuals or aggressive individuals and skewing your data? Yeah, we have a lot of constraints, though. So, for example, elephants. We cannot bring two elephants together who don't like each other. That's a, that's a disaster. 
So, so as, as Josh, who does my elephant studies, once said, I, I wanted to do the inequity study on elephants. And he said, no, you don't want to piss off an elephant. <laughs> now, so, so we're constrained by what we can do. And, and so we, we pick subjects on the basis of do they get along, uh, can we get them to test together. Sometimes the, you may even have two chimpanzees who, if one of them comes into the building, the other says, no, I'm not going to come. So how do we ever get them together if they, if they have that kind of decisions? And so we're always working within the constraints of what's possible there. Uh, and, and, um, and it is in captivity, obviously. And, and so these are chimps who know each other extremely well. Uh, some of them know each other for 25 years, having lived in that same compound. Uh, and so yeah, there's an enormous amount of other interactions that interfere with what we are doing. We're not, not having a pure test of, let's say, their pro-social tendencies, because they're all doing all sorts of other things, and, and, and we have to look at that. Now, there's one thing that we found interesting, is that at some point we speculated that maybe these pro-social behaviors come about because the one who is pro-social fears that if he's not in the group, he's going to get beaten up by the, by the other one. You know, that's a risk. And so that it, is, it has to do with repercussions if you're not pro-social. But then we found in our data, both in the monkey studies and in the chimp studies, that actually the most dominant individuals are the most pro-social, the most altruistic. And the most dominant individuals are the ones who have least to fear from the situation. And, and so that raised for us the issue, and, and we're actually working on that at the moment. Uh, are these guys dominant because they're so pro-social, or are they so pro-social because they're dominant? So it's sort of chicken and egg question that we try to figure out at the moment. But it's possible that they become dominant because they are pro-social in character. Hi, it's wonderful having you here. Um, I study sexuality and do counseling work with people with sexual problems. So I'm very curious whether uh, what you're noticing in terms of human sexuality versus the type of sexual behavior in the primate, in these other primates, um, particularly issues around like sexual violence and aggression and sexual compulsivity. Yeah. So the chimps and bonobos, which are cl our closest relatives, are radically different from us in the sense that they don't have partnerships. So they, um, they don't form pair bonds. Uh, and so it's not like the, the, the males are barely involved in childcare. The males are barely involved in some sort of family life. Uh, they may be tolerant of, 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 of infants, but that's about uh, the level of it. And so... Um, Human sexuality is always embedded in this family structure. Of course, it also often jumps outside of it, but the family structure is a very, very much a framework of human sexuality and, and the bonding mechanisms that, that go with that. And so that's a huge difference. As far as aggression is concerned, or aggressive type of sexuality, in bonobos, that's, as far as I know, totally absent. Both in the field and in captivity, I've never heard of um, an aggressive type of sexuality. Uh, in chimpanzees, in captivity, it doesn't happen, and I'll explain why. Um, even though male chimps are very dominant over the females and, and are, are not reluctant to beat up a female and things like that. Um, in the field, there are reports of males forcing females into what is called uh, tafari, in the, in the sense that they, go, uh, they, they, they force a female to go with them uh, outside of the group, and they keep that female sometimes for two weeks during her fertile period with them, 
and force her into sexual relationships. And, and sometimes the female escapes and, and from that. But uh, there's, there's some um, uh, th of that kind of thing going on. In, in captivity, that never happens. Because it's very different in captivity. The females are all together. And the females are very solidary in that regard. And so if one female gets harassed by a male, all the females will go after that male. And he's a very unlucky male at that moment. <laughs> so, uh, so it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. I'm um, actually reading to tag back to a question a couple questions ago about neuroscience. I'm reading The Empathic Brain right now, and I'm wondering, one, if you could speak to the intersection of, of kind of the, the gist of what you're discovering and what they're discovering about mirror neurons, which you briefly mentioned. And if, I feel like the upshot would be, how do we build empathy anthropocentrically and cross-species? And if it has something to do with modeling or teaching as you kind of at least some of that um, mentioned in your talk. Yeah, the connection between mirror neurons and empathy or imitation is, is largely hypothetical. So we, we do know what mirror neurons do. Mirror neurons m make the actions of you uh, um, replicated in me, so to speak. So, so if, if you reach for something, the same neuron is, is responsive to your reaching movement as my own reaching movement. That's why they're called mirror neurons. And, and, and of course, it's logical to speculate that they're involved at least in motor imitation. But people have also, because motor, motor imitation is involved in empathy, have speculated that they're also involved in empathy. But you know, most of what we know about mirror neurons, we know about from the monkeys. There's very little direct evidence in humans, because even though there's a lot of talk about it, in humans, we don't do the single cell recording that we do sometimes in monkeys. And so the evidence for monkeys is much stronger. And uh, there is an enormous amount of speculation, but at the moment I don't think we can put our finger on how they regulate or affect uh, empathy and imitation. Now, as far as other neuroscience, um, I'm involved in a study on rodents where we look at uh, empathy, and, and that study is probably going to give us oxytocin receptors and oxytocin mechanisms involved in empathy. Um, and I think in the rodent studies, since, since they can be much more invasive, we would never do that on chimpanzees. Uh, in the rodent studies, we're going to find uh, the neuroscience correlates uh, to that kind of behavior. That's going to happen in the coming five years, I think. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Wall, I love your work. And um, one thing that I really appreciate about it is that it's very, very humbling to human nature to be able to understand that these behaviors that you see in animals are not unique in us. And so my question for you is kind of simple. Without writing a book, um, what makes us human in your opinion? Uh, is it, besides, besides just intellect and the ability to maybe articulate our thoughts? Uh -huh. Yeah, that's always sort of the question. What makes us human? Um, I, would, I would say it's like, I look at it like an iceberg, you know, like the the nine-tenths of the iceberg is below the surface, and that's all the similarities that we have with other animals. And there's an enormous mass of similarities. And yes, there are a few differences, and that's what the tip of the iceberg that we see. And there are entire fields in, in, in the college which look only at the tip of the iceberg. So there's entire fields like anthropology, philosophy, the humanities. It used to be psychology also that is very obsessed by the tip of the iceberg and focuses all attention on it, and as soon as you mention that there's this thing under the surface, they, they're not particularly interested in it. Um, 
But it is changing in psychology under the influence of neuroscience. Psychology is completely changing because it's becoming more, more of a natural science. And at the tip, um, my top of the tip would be uh, language. For me, language would be the one thing that really sets us apart. It's a very human um, communication mechanism. We can teach it a little bit to the apes, and this has been tried. We can, they do a little bit of it. Uh, and, so, uh, and, and as soon as you... The interesting thing of this kind of capacities is also, as soon as you take them apart, so as soon as you take language apart in, into things like symbol use and knowing how to categorize things, and uh, as soon as you take it apart, many of these parts can be found in other species, uh, but the whole thing I don't think is found in other species. And so that's for me the special characteristic that we have. That still doesn't make us the most cooperative pe people on earth, right? No, no, but we can <laughs> use language to cooperate if, if we're good at it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Hello. Um, I really appreciated seeing that. Remind me of so many friends and neighbors I have. <laughs> you need to speak, you need to speak in the mic. Yeah. Can you hear me better? Can you hear me better? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, one quick question, the one relating to something else you said in one of your books. But I noticed the assistants who were working with the animals had their faces completely covered. Yeah. Not only the plastic mask, but um, and I assume it's because of germ transmission. But is it also so that the animals cannot pick up any nonverbal cues from the humans that work with them? Sometimes we try to do that. Sometimes we try to um, obscure our eyes with sunglasses or things like that. But um, in primate centers, that's the general rule is you need to cover your mouth. Sometimes we need to cover much more than just our mouth. I mean, they have a whole face shield on. Uh, and that's because of disease transmission. And it's, it's not just from us to them or from uh, or some sort of like cold, for example, chimpanzees get all the same diseases that we have very easily. We've seen that with the Ebola crisis, uh, because Ebola is a big problem for the apes. Um, but also um, because some primates, like the macaques, they have a deadly virus. There's already 25 people who have died as a result of transmission. And so it's also to protect us for certain viruses that we might get and that might kill us. Do you think that um, these animals are capable of communicating non-verbally with humans and that would contaminate your in the information and the data you receive? They can read our non-verbal communication. We can read theirs very easily, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that might affect... Uh, but But if it is necessary that we... If you do, for example, a test on tool use and you don't want to cue them on one tool or the other, then you need to set up some sort of screen or to do it from a distance so that they cannot pick up that kind of cues. And so, for example, with the pro-social study, we, we once did a whole pro-social study where my assistants would have a, a dark um, face shield, so, so you couldn't see their face at all, um, but it didn't make any difference. So we didn't know what to do with that. Yeah. I have done research in pro-social behavior and altruism, and one thing that in your in reading that you have stated that those or whoever who would... Um, promote the image that humans are basically violent and evil, have a selfish agenda and a reason for doing that, and I'd like to know what you think that is. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I completely understand. So, so people who... Yes. Um, 
one of the references in one of your books, I remember, was saying that basically you do not feel that human beings are at base violent. Yeah, yeah. But others have promoted people as humans as being basically violent, as that is our basic nature. And in some reference, you said that is, has been promoted for selfish reasons. And I'm wondering if... Yeah, I'm also wondering where, what that means and where that comes from. I'll, I'll um, find that. But, the, but um, it, it used to be in the 70s and 80s, especially, that uh, humans were depicted as entirely selfish. And so, so there was really nothing else possible. The, the most famous quote of that literature was, scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. That was quoted all over the place, and people were very happy with that quote, and it basically said that, that genuine kindness doesn't exist. And that has completely disappeared. I, I call that veneer theory. That kind of theory has completely disappeared, and it's now gone. But it certainly supports the war, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming to the University of Oregon, Dr. Wall. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, I was wondering if you could mention just a few books or people that you admire and that influenced your fascination that you have with uh, primates and biology today. And I also was wondering what were some of your favorite examples um, of nurture playing a role in primate behavior. Thanks. Of nurture? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so um, my early inspiration came from actually from people like Conrad Lorenz and, and Desmond Morris who wrote popular books before anyone else. And, and try to uh, connect biology and human behavior, even though if we now look back at these books of Lawrence and, and Morris, we think they are very simplistic and, 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 and wrong-headed, actually, in many ways. But um, I was very inspired by that. And then I was very inspired by early primatologists, who uh, sort of the generation right before me, who uh, started doing that kind of work. And what is a good example of nurture? I think a good example is the, the monkey experiment. The, the stem cell rhesus monkey experiment, which shows that the environment has a very big impact on behavior. Uh, there's many of that kind of studies. Sapolsky recently uh, published one on baboons in the field. A very good example. If you want to look that up, you need you look up Sapolsky and uh, Pacific culture in baboons, and, and that's a paper on that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much. Wonderful talk. Um, uh, I heard a talk on a primate study done uh, a while back that was presented on NPR, the radio lab. It talked about a baboon group in Africa that noticed the, the aftermath of a hepatitis outbreak and how the baboons uh, went from a very aggressive state that are typically more aggressive. That's than exactly the study that I just mentioned, Sapolsky study. Oh, yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a TB outbreak. Uh, and so they, uh, let me explain the story. Well, so, right quick, the question yeah. is uh, not so much that story, but if you feel optimistic that you, somehow by primate sort of observation, we can back catalyze peace and tranquility and wonderfulness in a human species. Okay? Uh -huh. So in other words, <laughs> maybe humans can act as, as well as baboons do uh, <laughs> or are capable of. So the uh, baboon study. It's a study by Sapolsky where he had one group of baboons where the most aggressive males fed on a, a garbage dump and got TB and died. And so the, the group was left with other males and females, of course, uh, but the most aggressive males had died. 
and, and, and the group became very peaceful, but that's not so surprising, I think. But 10 years later, the group was still very peaceful. And that's the interesting part. Is 10 years later, after all the migration that were possible, um, they still remained peaceful. And so Sapolsky speculated about how, how they had created a more pacific culture. Whether we humans can do that, I think we are in the process of doing that, actually. If you look at warfare in the world, even though you wouldn't think so, if you look at the media today, um, it is reduced. Um, and so um, I, I'm in that regard not so pessimistic. I think the world is becoming more one than it used to be. And we are, we're, for example, concerned about earthquakes in completely different countries that we have nothing to do with. Uh, but we are all connected now uh, in, in some way. And, and so uh, even though there is a lot of uh, pessimism possible about the human species, if you look at the news, um, I, I do think that things are moving very slowly and gradually in a different direction. Okay, you showed the branching chart between the bonobos and the chimps, going back to a fork, and then that going back to a fork with hominids before that, with Artie, perhaps, or about that time, or whatever. How comfortable are you with reading the results you get from two kinds of uh, chimp back to a common ancestor and then the things that may show up in all three groups back to a common ancestor. You mean how comfortable, may I ask, how comfortable am I comparing the trio, so to speak, and going back? Yeah, in other words, a common ancestor displayed those same traits. Yeah, I would think uh, that's basically all we have. We have gorillas, bonobos, and chimps, and humans. We, so we have four species that go back to some common ancestor. Um, and of course, characteristics that we find in all four species are very likely, very likely were present in that common ancestor. That, that would be my assumption, even though we don't know what kind of creature there was. And, and at the moment, we are in a big debate about this, because when, when the paper came out about chimpanzee violence, which just recently came out, uh, the media said, we are natural-born killers, we are violent, uh, warfare is in our DNA, because look at the chimps. And they were completely forgetting that in the same study, the bonobos were totally peaceful uh, and had no killings, at least only one suspected case. And so they were sort of ignoring that idea is that we have uh, four species to work with, and they were only looking at chimpanzee at that point. And so I always argue we need to look at bonobos as well. We need to look equally at males and females. Evolution is not something that only males do. Uh, that's a, uh, that's both sexes are involved. And so to, to hang everything on chimpanzee males who kill each other, uh, hang the whole human evolution on that, is a, I, I call it single quadrant um, anthropology, I've called it. Because we have a quadrant, we have two sexes and two species to compare ourselves with. And we're only looking at male chimpanzees, and the other three we are sort of ignoring. And, and I think that has been going on now for 50 years, and, and I hope that that will stop, because um, that's a sort of very silly way of looking at evolution. One last. Who's the last? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm wondering about your opinion on how we can possibly train and do research, maybe intervention research, on training altruism, not just a byproduct of the environment and learning that way, but actually intervening and training that, and if that's something you think is possible and possible to do research on. Yeah, there's a lot of these training programs. At Emory, we have, for example, Tibetan monks who train people to 
in, in compassionate meditation and that kind of things, uh, mindfulness, uh, all the kind of trainings are going on. Um, I do believe from the data that I've seen that they have quite remarkable short-term effects. I don't know how remarkable the long-term effects is, but certainly if you train people um, on compassionate meditation, uh, for, for the next couple of months they, they change their behavior. I'm not sure that that's in the long run something. But, but education is, of course, most efficient in the younger years, and so I think it, it boils down more to how do you raise your children and are we doing that in the right way? And, and I'm not an expert on that. I cannot tell you how we should do that. And, and, and if increasing empathy, I think increasing empathy is a good thing, but if that is the pure focus, uh, whether that's a good thing, yes or no. Thank you.